and welcome to the latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. Today, we are discussing the topic of achieving diversification. Advisors have tried for generations to build portfolios with the capacity to perform in all weathers, but with huge uncertainty around the direction of economies and markets, and bond markets in particular providing a roller coaster ride for investors. What does diversification look like right now? Joining me to discuss the topic are Hugh Gimber, Global Market Strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management, Nathan Sweeney, Chief Investment Officer for Multi Asset at Marlborough, and Rupert Thompson, Chief Economist at Kingswood Group. Good morning, all, and thank you for joining me. Um, Nathan, we'll we'll start with you for the first question. The tale of markets for most of the past decade has been one of correlations or traditional correlations not really working in the QE era bonds and most equities rose broadly together then in 2022 they fell together how can we be confident that the inverse correlation idea which underpins so much portfolio theory will perform in future so I think the reality is we we can't be 100% confident so ultimately this is the unintended consequence of quantitative easing. You know, if central banks keep interest rates artificially low for such a prolonged period of time, there's going to be an impact when they raise interest rates at the speed that they did. Um, and, you know, that led to an environment where ultimately, you know, bonds sold off and equities sold off. So it's created quite a big challenge. So the key question is, you know, now that interest rates are higher, will those bonds provide that diversification that we all want or hope that they'll deliver. Um, the new narrative that's coming out is that interest rates are likely to come down, but they're likely to settle at a longer term average. And if you look at performance of bond markets over the last, call it 100 or 150 years, that long term average is around 3 to 4%. So people are thinking we get to that level. But I suppose the point is that we, you know, ourselves do believe that, you know, that's where we are likely to get to. However, we can't say it with 100% certainty. And, you know, just to think of one example, we do have an election this year. Donald Trump may win that election and he will want to get interest rates back to those artificially low levels. So, again, it's one of those things we'll just have to be vigilant. But, you know, our base case today is that we do get to that new normal and that provides the diversification which we hope we get from bonds. Thank you, Hugh. Um, quite a few uh, <clears throat> things to pick up on there, but um, how certain can we be, given that you know we had QE in Japan before we had it here, but th- the unwinding of QE here arguably has not happened in the circumstances that te- textbooks would would dictate. Textbooks would dictate that you're unwinding QE when fiscal stabilizers mean the deficits are falling, when economic growth is very robust, and therefore governments aren't issuing as many bonds so the supply demand issue is more imbalanced we don't have that what could that potentially mean for asset allocation sure i think for me the key here is whether you're looking for diversification against a growth shock or an inflation shock and that's where the role of fixed income and its relationship with equities looks very different you go back to the 1980s and the 1990s the time before really when we had independent central banks and inflation was much higher at the time we had two decades there where stock bond correlations were positive 
In other words, you couldn't rely on bonds as a consistent diversifier against equities because inflation at higher levels meant that you couldn't rely on the central banks to cut interest rates at any sign of a problem in the economy. Then you get into the 2000s and the 2010s, where inflation is that much lower and that much more stable, and therefore any real shock to the economy and therefore to stock markets as well was a growth shock. And so you saw that negative stock bond correlation reasserting and therefore portfolio construction became that much more straightforward. So looking further forward now, I think really this all comes back down to inflation. If you are confident that we're drifting into that low and stable inflation environment that was so familiar for the past decade, you would be assuming that stock bond correlations will be consistently negative. Rather, I think we're more likely to see periods where negative correlations work in investors' favour, i.e. where there is a growth shock to the economy. But if it's an inflation problem that markets are having to grapple with, I think we'll see more repeated bouts of periods like 2022 where you see stocks and bonds selling off simultaneously and therefore you have to think much more broadly about the types of assets in the portfolio that really can be reliable diversifiers depending on the shock that you're trying to diversify against. Thank you. Uh, Rupert at Kingswood, what does diversification mean to you in the current environment and can we rely on bonds and equities being inversely correlated? Well, I have to say I agree with <laughs> with both of what you know you both said. Um, I mean, my sort of one word answer is no. There's no guarantees in this world, and you just have to look at the sort of shift in correlation, which you know, Hugh, you were talking about. I you had this twenty years of positive correlations, twenty years or so of negative correlations, and then the last couple of years positive correlations to sort of to. You know, you've got to be fairly humble in trying to predict where correlations are going from here. But I completely agree it all depends on inflation. And I guess our view is that inflation is receding, but it's going to be higher than it was. So in a way, you're halfway between where you were a couple of years ago when clearly correlations are positive and where you were you know, in the last decade when inflation was too low. So inflation is not going to be a bigger problem, which caused the big problem for bonds and equities both going down in 2022 again. But are you going to get back to the sort of very benign inflation levels you had over the last sort of 10, 20 years? No, you're not. So short answer is I think correlations will be negative, but there is going to be some volatility. Um, the fact of the matter is, I mean, most people agree that inflation is coming down, but it is going to be more inf- more volatile going forward than it has been in the past. Thank you. And Rupert, we'll, we'll stick with you for the for the next question as well. A feature of equity markets in in recent years has been both that um, the US equity markets done done very well and did it recently hit a new all-time high, but also that we've had a flight of companies uh, choosing to list in the US, whether they were listed somewhere else and have moved or whether they're based somewhere else and have chosen to move uh, to list in the US. In that context, does equity correlation by geography matter anymore to you, Rupert? I think it does still matter. Um, I think the fact that, you know, increasing number of companies are now listing in the States rather than elsewhere is sort of more more important in terms of sort of smaller mid-cap rather than large cap. Um, and, you know, you only have to look at um, the, di- the divergence in performance between the US and other markets over the last few years to sort of see that, you know, there is, you know, country diversification does matter enormously. Um, but I think a very important point here is, it's not so much the US is outperforming because that economy is doing so much better. 
I mean, definitely it is doing better in the last couple of years or so than people thought, and that has contributed. But the fact of the matter is, I would say the bulk of the US outperformance in recent years has been down to its sector makeup. And clearly what I'm talking about is tech and the Magnificent Seven. So in a way, geography does matter, but it matters, I would say, more so because there's such a difference in sector makeup of the different country indices. So short answer is, I think, you know, there is going to remain substantial divergence in performance between the big economies, or sorry, big um, stock markets. Thank you uh, for that, Rupert. Um, Nathan, when you're putting together multi-asset portfolios at Marlborough, mm-hmm. is geographical diversification one of the things that you think about? Yeah, look, it's, it's hugely important. You know, you just have to think of the performance of various different regions over time. Um, and if we take 2022 as a really good example, the U.S. market didn't do so well in 2022. So U.S. equities were down 18 percent. U.K. equities were up 4 percent. And, you know, that's as a byproduct, really, of the styles within those markets. So the U.S. pretty much growth focused and growth selling off as interest rates rising. And then if you look at the UK market, you got a lot of value in there, high dividend defensive companies. So at a portfolio level, when you're mixing these different regions, you are getting different styles. And that helps to give you that diversification, which is clearly oh so important today. And we did talk about the fact that we may be moving to this new normal world of interest rates at call it 3%. And you know if that is the case, it changes the outcome for some of those tech companies because a lot of these tech companies, particularly unprofitable tech companies, have been binging on cheap debt. That debt will be more expensive. It then you know, changes you know, the potential earnings over time for these companies and it narrows the gap between those US tech companies and the rest of the world. Um, I'm not sure if anybody's picked up on this yet, but there's been a new interesting acronym that has arrived on the scene called the Granolas. And so this is just a group of European stocks. And it just showcases the fact that this group of European stocks, mainly healthcare stocks, have performed extremely well since 2021. And actually, the performance of those stocks since 2021 has matched the performance of the Magnificent Seven. But we hear a lot about the Magnificent Seven because clearly they're in the media the whole time. But we've seen these basket of granola stocks quietly working away and delivering quite good returns. And interestingly, they did it with less volatility because you didn't see the big drawdown that we saw in tech in 2022. Thank you. Hugh, uh, I know you guys put out uh, capital markets assumptions and stuff like that. When you're doing that, does the composition of markets, does the fact that the US is attracting companies from elsewhere in the world factor in, in your thinking? I think the points raised around sector exposures are absolutely key. And a really good example of this is just looking at some of the countries within Europe. So if I'm thinking about the outlook for the Italian stock market, I'm much more focused on the outlook for high-end cars than I am the Italian economy. Right? You go to Switzerland, what are people going to be buying in terms of chocolate matters a lot more than whether or not the, the Swiss economy is doing well or not. So the sector makeup and really the company makeup of some of these benchmarks is ultimately the easiest way to understand some of the out or underperformance. The second point I'd make is around valuations. Because, David, you mentioned this kind of relentless tide of money pushing towards the US, but now we sit with regional discounts relative to the US, which I think are starting to flash red. Mm. 
You have Europe trading on around a 30% discount to the US market, the UK on 50%, even if you go somewhere like China, 60% discount to the US now. And not all of that can be explained by just the sector makeup. So I think regional diversification matters a lot, and particularly in a year where the US market has been incredibly strong, has done very well, but now is trading on what looks to be a fairly rich valuation. Thank you. And Hugh, I guess, look, the, the obvious follow-up question to that is, uh, so far as we know, or so far, the performance of the US economy is, is really starting to d diverge from that of the rest of the world. Does that matter from a portfolio construction point of view, given that so much of the, so much of the returns from US equities have been those seven stocks, which aren't particularly focused on, on US economy, any more than they are on any other economy in the world. So this sort of US exceptionalism question is a really interesting one. And I think it's very important to tackle whether we're being backward looking or forward looking here. Because I completely agree that the US economy was far stronger than other regions last year. That was led by a consumer which was much more confident, further away from an energy shock, spending down pandemic savings. And it was also supported by what was pretty punchy fiscal stimulus at a time where the economy probably didn't need that much support from the government. I think what's interesting now is that we're starting to see some of last year's weaker regions begin to surprise positively. So you look at some of the European data, the UK data being a good example, where relative to expectations, I think there's much more room for upside surprise now outside of the US. And as you start to see the US consumer beginning to fade, as some of that pandemic kind of overhang stimulus is also pulled back this year, I expect there to be some regional convergence, but I think that's more likely the US economy catching down a little and some of the more beaten up economies like the UK or the Eurozone potentially ending up a little bit stronger than many people expect. Thank you. And uh, Rupert, as uh, Chief Economist at, at Kingswood, I'm sure you're, you're going into the, uh, the investment managers with, uh, with the latest economic chart and telling them how important it all is and how they need to listen to you. But... Uh, how do you? How as do you? Important, as important as ever, as um, well, not quite as uncertain as ever, but still very uncertain. I think in terms of where we go, more so on inflation maybe than growth. In that, everyone's now sort of come around to the view that we are going to see a soft landing. But just getting to the back to the points you were making, <laughs> I mean, I completely agree with Hugh that in terms of the growth gap, it is likely to narrow. In a way, the extent to which the US has outperformed in the last couple of years or so is basically down to the fact that it was less affected by the pandemic-related shocks in the UK and Europe. And so that gap is now starting to narrow. But longer term, I do think you need to bear in mind that sort of trend growth is higher in the States than in sort of the UK and Europe, which is a long-term positive for the US. But against that, and I think this is much more important, which again is a point you know, Hugh's already mentioned, is the valuation gap between the States and elsewhere. And you can make the case that, you know, some positive valuation premium for the US is warranted because it's got higher quality companies, because it's got higher trend growth. But does it really justify you know, 60% premium to other markets when the long-term average has been 20%? Our answer is no. So, I mean, basically our view is that short-term you know, valuations couldn't matter less, but certainly if you're looking at a, on a five to 10-year view, the most important factor is that the US is horrendously overvalued compared to other markets, and that is going to limit the returns you're going to get there. Thank you for that, Rupert. Uh, Nathan, uh, when you're when you're 
um, allocating the, the equity bucket at, at Marlborough? Uh, are you looking at US economic data and, and giving that great significance? Yeah, so we have quite a complex approach to uh, assessing whether or not we want to implement a, say, a tactical asset allocation view. Um, so we look at a number of different areas. So firstly, we look at macroeconomic data. So he will be very familiar with this. So we're obviously looking at things like GDP, inflation, etc. Um, and the way we do it is ultimately we want to score each region on those factors. So macro earnings, valuations, technicals, agencies. And it's a sum of the parts aggregation of that view to give us a view on what we think of that specific economy. So if you look at the US, clearly growth in the US is far stronger than Europe, the UK and many other regions. Um, growth is slowing, but it still remains quite robust. And the data that's coming out has been surprising to the upside. So unemployment is still quite low, etc. And growth did surprise to the upside as well. Um, so, you know, there's a, there's a lot of factors to consider. And, you know, clearly, you know, the, the big one is going to be central banks cutting interest rates. Now, the expectation has been pushed out a bit. But it's not a matter of when it happens or if it happens. It's a matter of when it happens. Uh, ultimately, we do think those uh, rate cuts come through uh, probably around May, June time is you're kind of expected at this point. Uh, but yeah, there's a lot of things you need to factor into when you're uh, looking at any region. And you know, the, the US at the moment is, is kind of it's, it's looking good. Thank you for that, um, Nathan. And if we stick with you for the for the next uh, question, government bonds have been a particularly volatile asset class since twenty twenty. Many uh, many of your peers, I'm sure, and and many clients viewed the role of government bonds as being to to dampen volatility rather than necessarily being a return seeking asset in their own right. Can they still play? that traditional role if they are going to be that volatile going forward. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. So I think uh, ultimately clients' confidence in bonds has been really decimated um, because if you think about it, uh, ultimately clients invest in equities and they expect volatility when they invest in equities. But when you invest in bonds, you do not expect the level of volatility that we've seen. We've had one of the worst bond markets in over 100 years and unfortunately, for your low-risk clients, they've had a high exposure to bonds and duration, and that's been quite a painful experience over the last two years. Now, it's important not to lose faith in bonds because ultimately we have seen a reset in bond prices, and the level of income that you're getting paid today is much, much higher than we've seen for the last decade. Now, we lived in this perverse world where people were buying equity for income, and they were buying bonds for capital appreciation. And because we have interest rates at a higher level today, it reverses that role. And it comes back to that question is, you know, if we get interest rates at that higher level, then that diversification is in play. And bonds will prov provide you with that ballast when it's needed most. Uh, but, you know, there, there are obviously other asset classes as well that you can look at. But we, we do think that, you know, bonds are providing you with a lot more potential today. Thank you. Um, and Rupert at uh, at Kingswood, um, can we can we rely on 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 bonds as as the lower uh, government bonds as the lower uh, volatility asset class in portfolios? And if not, what's the point of them? I basically agree that um, we do still think bonds have 
a role and as it were yeah in a way 2022 we hope is a one-off um i mean the way we look at it in a way is just to say bond you yeah basically most government bonds well forgetting about japan for the moment most western government bonds are now yielding four percent and what that means is if you get a growth shock if you get a risk-off move caused by deflation worries then you've got the scope for yields to fall, which you didn't have before, and that means they're going to provide a very nice balance to any fall off in equities. So that's sort of great. The only problem here is that if you get an inflation shock, which causes the risk off move, then bonds are not going to provide you the offset. So again, it all sort of comes back down to inflation. If you think you're through the worst of inflation, inflation is going to come back down towards 2%, then I think you can expect actually bonds to do what they're supposed to do. Um, yields are at four and they can fall if necessary. So short answer is, yes, I do think bonds are back to sort of having a useful role in portfolios. Thank you. And uh, you, uh, government bonds, obviously, uh, one, one can also think about, about duration. And, you know, if you're shorter duration, you're protecting, as you mentioned earlier, is it a growth shock or a recession shock? Short duration protects you against one of those shocks, longer duration, arguably, against the other. But at the moment, when constructing a portfolio, is it a case of you have to choose which of those shocks you want protection against or can you just own a basket of them along the curve and that offers you protection which, whichever way around? It's a good question. Generally, we feel that clearly the short duration trade has been the place to be for the past two years. Now we think is a time to be extending duration in the context of a rate cutting cycle that looks to lie ahead. Now, I think extending duration obviously means different things to different people. This is about getting back to sort of benchmark weight in fixed income portfolios. And so making sure that you still have uh, enough to benefit if you do see rate cuts being delivered in the second half of the year without wanting to be swinging for the fences in sort of 20, 30 year bonds, where still there's a lot to learn about these economies. I also think here being reasonably diversified in a government bond portfolio is also an important angle because what's notable when you look across different economies today, you have a very different balance of growth versus inflation risks depending on where you look. So the US economy looking much stronger today, the Eurozone economy looking quite a lot weaker. I think of the major central banks, probably the ECB is in the best position here, where yes, inflation's that bit higher, but mainly just because the unions are taking a long time to renegotiate wage terms. Ultimately, it looks to us like the ECB can embark on a cutting cycle fairly soon. Not today, but in the next few months, we think they will be taking rates down. And so having that regional basket of government bonds to allow you to tap into some of the areas of the world where that growth and inflation mix looks a little bit more favourable is another important consideration. Thank you. Um, and uh, the next question, Nathan, I think you're particularly looking forward to this one. Are alternative investments truly a diversifier or indeed truly necessary uh, in a portfolio when bond yields are higher? Yeah, so alternatives is a, you know, clearly it's an asset class which is full of lots of different types of investments. Um, so just to kind of uh, give you a bit of a broader uh, spectrum on that one. So you could fit property in there, you can fit commodities in there, infrastructure, hedge funds. So, you know, it's quite a diverse mix and, and bucket so I think the key thing for anybody when looking at alternatives, you really want to understand what you want to hold and why. 
Uh, from our perspective, actually, when it comes to alternatives, we are underweight because we do notice that, you know, alternatives provide you with great diversification. Um, and ultimately, that diversification, it does work well at times and less well at other times. So if we scroll back to 2022, uh, clearly quite a bad year for equities and bonds, all stick great. We were overweight alternatives and you know that added value to the portfolios. And then last year, we could see that the landscape was changing. The environment was uh, you know improving for equities and bonds and cash as well. So when we're making these portfolio decisions, we have to look at the opportunity cost of holding one versus the other. And absolute return, which is sits in the alt bucket, and that's the area we were overweight, we reduced that to an underweight and basically took that element out of the portfolio. And it was the right decision because ultimately um, those absolute return funds on average delivered slightly negative results for the year. But we do have other alternatives in the portfolio. And so today we're looking towards infrastructure and we're looking towards commodities and, and within that space we're looking at gold uh, because we do think with um, obviously interest rates coming down and the potential for possibly lower returns from equities and better diversification from bonds, those alts look more attractive today. Um, so it comes back to that, that key point. You really need to understand what you're buying and how you're using it. And, you know, the big thing for a lot of the alts is clearly the illiquidity of some of them and the cost as well. So you, you got to do your homework when you're putting these in portfolios. Thank you. Um, Hugh, a phenomenon of what may become known as the QE era from the end of the global financial crisis to uh, the start of the pandemic was that lots of uh, investment products or asset classes came to the market, uh, student property, music royalties, etc., that were billed as alternatives. And then bond yields rose and it turned out that rather than being uncorrelated, which is maybe what an alternative asset is supposed to be, they were just correlated to bond yields. Um, but is there such a, a thing as an alternative asset class uh, and are they are they necessary when you're doing capital market assumptions, do you look at alternatives? So absolutely, we do look at alternatives. But I think the broader context here is that we're all looking for assets in portfolios that can offer some diversification against the inflation shock. And that's where real assets within the alternative universe, I think, have a particular role to play, whether that's infrastructure or real estate or, or some of the more um, or less familiar ones like transport. But here we have to be really careful as to whether you're talking about inflation-protected cash flows or inflation-protected capital values. Because take real estate as a prime example here. You have often um, leases that are linked to inflation. And so your rental income rises and inflation goes up, and therefore you have cash flows that are adjusting higher to reflect inflation moving higher. But of course, why is inflation going up? Well, probably because the economy is strong, therefore interest rates are rising, and therefore capital values get hit, even though you have that inflation-protected income. So I think Nathan used the phrase, you really have to do your homework. I think that's absolutely right in terms of being very clear on which part of that um, asset you're really trying to tap into for inflation protection. And then just finally, also, you have to think about the vehicle because you're going to get a very different experience investing in, say, private real estate versus publicly listed real estate or REITs, which often behave more like equities than they do alternatives. So think about how that inflation protection is going to come through and then also whether the vehicle that's available to you can deliver the outcome that you're looking for. 
Uh, Rupert, uh, what does alternative assets mean to you at Kingswood? And do we need them? Do we need them in portfolios right now? Once again, I'm going to agree with what you've already said. Um, yeah, we definitely look at alternatives. We're very much in the camp that alternatives are necessary. But again, I would echo your words of caution. You need to know what you need to know what you're investing in. Alternatives have a whole load of different sub-asset classes which behave very differently. And quite often, a lot is promised from these alternatives, which you know doesn't end up being delivered. Because I'm not saying they're being sold, but um, they don't quite perform as well or in the way that you've been led to believe they will. I mean, infrastructure is a classic case, I'd say. You know, everyone's banged on about the inflation protection you get from infrastructure, yet has infrastructure outperformed equities over the last couple of years? No, for precisely the reason you said. Interest rates have gone up. So you've got to be pretty sort of clued up on what your particular alternative is going to be doing. Um, I think the last point is sort of an obvious one is that you know, sometimes people talk about alternatives or sort of view alternatives as the holy grail, the magic solution to provide the diversification you're going to get. We do think they're necessary, but, you know, they're not going to work all the time, but they are essential. So, you know, there isn't an easy solution to any of this. But at the end of the day, you've got to have a well-diversified portfolio. And that means bonds, it means equities and it means alternatives. Thank you for that, Rupert Thompson, Chief Economist at Kingswood Group. And thank you to Hugh Gimber, Global Market Strategist at JP Morgan Asset Management, and to Nathan Sweeney, Chief Investment Officer for Multi-Asset at Marlborough. And thank you all for listening. Please do remember to tune in to future editions of the FT Advisor podcast. Goodbye. <laughs>